Hello, and welcome to episode 71 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People, featuring Mira Jacob. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Mira Jacob is the author of the novel The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, and the author and illustrator for the newly released Good Talk, a memoir in conversations. Her writing and drawings have appeared in various publications, such as The New York Times, Electric Literature, and Tin House. She lives in Brooklyn and currently teaches at the New School. I first met Mira Jacob in person at an event organized by Commonplace Episode 17 guest, the amazing poet Natalie Diaz. The event took place at Housing Works soon after the 2016 election. Mira projected images of several pages from Good Talk on the wall. Good Talk, which had not yet been published at that time, contains several conversations between Mira and her son, who she refers to in the book as Z. These conversations are funny, sad, moving, inspiring, and are about race, racial violence, familial belonging, resistance, acceptance, and so much more. Mira and her son, who I believe was eight at the time, performed the dialogue from the book to a rapt audience. From the beginning of my career, I've written, to use Sharon Olds's phrase, apparently autobiographical poems and prose. So I was fascinated by Mira's book and by her decision to read from it with her actual son. I was lucky enough to get my hands on an advanced reader for Good Talk. I read it and loved it and wanted very much to talk with Mira for Commonplace about her books and about being a mother artist. The book is fabulous, a great read for summer or for any time, and I urge you to get your hands on a copy and read it. I recorded the conversation you are about to hear in my apartment on April 30th, 2019, just a few days after recording a conversation with poet Ilya Kaminsky, which we're hoping to air in early fall. You'll hear me talk in the beginning of the episode about not feeling well. From the time I returned to New York from AWP on March 31st, my anemia steadily worsened and I had several periods of extreme pain and heavy bleeding. Other than recording with Ilya and Mira, the entire month of April and the first few months of May were taken up with trying to figure out what was causing the bleeding and pain, several failed attempts to stop the bleeding, and finally, a hysterectomy on May 20th. Now, just over three weeks post-surgery, those months and months of anemia, bleeding, pain, are both too vivid and a haze. I remember how nervous I was in the days and hours leading up to Mira's visit that I would have to cancel. I had rescheduled with her already. I was really much more sick than I let on. I remember the relief I felt when Mira arrived that I was able to sit upright and talk to her for over two hours. An hour or so after she left, I was totally exhausted, but I would not have traded the immense joy and pleasure of talking with this brilliant artist about the conversations that her six-year-old son had that inspired Good Talk, about why Mira chose the graphic medium, and about one of my obsessional topics, guidelines for writing about and visually depicting family and friends, especially children. 
Mira and I also talked about the challenges and pleasures of translating text into audio, which has been very helpful to me as I continue to work on my own audio project. I have inserted three short clips from the audiobook of Good Talk throughout this episode, even though Mira and I only start talking about the audiobook halfway through the episode. Many thanks to Random House for sharing the audiobook Good Talk by Mira Jacob, narrated by the author, with a full cast, with us, and for copies of The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, and to Random House One World for copies of Good Talk. For this episode, some Commonplace Book Club members will receive copies of Good Talk and The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, and all Commonplace patrons will get access to two more excerpts from the Good Talk audiobook, as well as a sneak preview of a sound piece from Sound Machine that I'm working on with sound designer Nathaniel Wokstein, and a short essay I wrote years ago called Graven Image Envy. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron at the book club level or at any level, please visit patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or our website, commonpodcast.com, where you will also find links to the books and people mentioned in this episode. If you're already a Commonplace patron, thank you so much. Commonplace has no ads, no grants, no institutional support. It would not be possible to make Commonplace without the support of our beloved patrons. I loved making this episode, and I am so excited about the terrific upcoming episodes with Ilya Kaminsky, Victoria Chang, Jennifer Croft, and Doreen Wang. Thank you all for your patience during my illness and recovery. We've been posting episodes less frequently. And thank you for the tweets, emails, and Instagram posts wishing me good health. I think they helped. I'm still not 100%, but I am getting stronger and better and looking forward to the future. Happy third anniversary to Commonplace. Happy trails to Nicholas Fuenzalita, trusted and treasured Commonplace producer, who is moving on to begin law school. And happy summer Happy reading, happy listening, happy living to you all. Okay, so just to reiterate, we can I think you might have gotten this in my email, but I've been having some anemia. So I'm like really breathless. I can hear it in myself. Um, but I feel like a little self-conscious about that. And also I'm definitely just not that sharp right now. Um got it. Okay. <laughs> so this is the last commonplace I'm gonna record until I really feel better because I canceled with you twice or at least once. Mm -hmm. I just, there was no way I was going to cancel with you. I have loved preparing for this and like okay. rereading the book and yeah. all the stuff, but I'm going to do a good enough job and everybody's going to go buy your book and they're going to love it. But like, I just feel for some reason, it's really important for me to tell you that I'm okay. usually a little smarter than this. No. <laughs> Listen, physical stuff is physical stuff. We, none of us can escape it. It is really true. And it, it's sort of intellectually interesting yeah. on the days when I feel well enough to be interested in it. Yes. I'm like, this is super interesting. 
So I'm just going to like take it a little slower than usual, sure. look at my notes more than usual. Of course. Um, and also, please, like if I if I say something that's wrong, yeah. then just be like, no, Rachel, you just said something wrong. So let's first describe your book. So um, Good Talk, A Memoir in Conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, which I have absolutely loved, and I've never seen anything quite like it before. And, you know, I think that the first time that I met you, we didn't really meet in in great depth, but was the event that Natalie Diaz curated at Housing Works. Mm -hmm. And I read, um, and you read with your son. Yes. And you projected the images, Mm -hmm. and then you read together. Mm -hmm. So the book is about um, so many things, but starts and is centered on some questions that your son Z asks you uh, first about Michael Jackson um, and then about race and um, so many important identity questions about himself and about the world. But it ends up being much larger than that um, as well. Could you just maybe say a little bit about um, I know you've done this a million times because now you're like on book tour, but you know, describe the book a little of bit course. for people. Yeah. Yeah. So the book does, it starts with the questions about Michael Jackson, because what happened was my son was really obsessed with Michael Jackson, like learned all the moves, had the hat, the glove. And when he started listening to the music, we thought we would be these brilliant geniuses by getting him a record player. Along with the record player, of course, comes the albums. Along with the albums comes a six-year-old boy who's got one white parent and one brown parent staring at albums of Michael Jackson from basically, you know, the 60s until the the 90s, almost the 2000s. And he's looking at those pictures. And so he eventually comes with the kind of natural questions. Some of them were really funny, like, what happened to his other glove? (laughs) And what is a LaToya? And some of them, like when he asked me specifically about his skin color, he asked me, is Michael Jackson, is he brown or is he white? And I said, well, you know, he's black, but he was brown. He's sort of a turned white and he said he turned white and I said yeah and he goes are you gonna turn white and I said no he said am I gonna turn white no daddy and I said daddy's already white and he said was he always and it was one of those moments when I realized okay right so I have now confused my child forever (laughs) and what do we do here but the questions really quickly went from that to what is Michael Jackson like better being brown or white And then to harder ones, like he was hearing about Ferguson and it kind of got all mixed up in his mind. And he thought there was a kid named Ferguson who was brown, who was killed by a white policeman. And I had to say, no, he was Michael Brown. He was a black kid. He was killed by a white policeman. Um, And he had questions about that. How far are we from Ferguson? Are white people afraid of brown people? And then is daddy afraid of us? Hmm. You know, what was so funny when I got that question is I think I was so sad in the moment that it happened and I sort of said, no, 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 no. But then later, because I'm familiar with that line of thinking, it's not totally foreign to me. I was telling my husband about it and I sort of said, you know, so he asked if you were afraid of him and my husband said, wait, wait, what? Our son asked if I was afraid of him? My son asked Mm. if I was afraid of him? And... I just realized like we are all three coming from such different points, even in our family unit of experience. Z is six. So he's coming with this sort of extraterrestrial being introduced to earth and the rules of earth. He's coming with this kind of nascent 
you know, ability to understand what's going on. My husband, Jed, is coming from uh, being white and Jewish and operating from a certain amount of privilege, which comes with blindness to how things go for people like myself and Z. And I'm coming from a place where some of these conversations seem so old to me that I'm surprised when my husband doesn't know them. And I realize that love alone doesn't solve, doesn't bridge these kinds of gaps. Mm -hmm. And it made me also think a lot about the America that we were in. Now, that was 2014, 2015, and um, Trump was rising. Z had a lot of questions about that. And my in-laws, my husband's parents, were becoming avid Trump supporters. And so all of this was sort of cratering our family in a really specific way. And it sort of sent me back through my life growing up in New Mexico as an East Indian woman, as the third family to move into the state. I very carefully note that that is according to the other first two families. Mm -hmm. And all the questions I was asked and this sort of idea I had always had about America, about this kind of fantasy I'd had about by the time I grow up, these things aren't going to be a problem because America is always getting better about race and the fallacy of that. Mm-hmm. So the book is told in kind of two parts. There's a present and there's a past, and the past is all of the conversations that I've had about every variety of things. Some of it's about race, some of it's about sexuality, some of it's about femininity. Much of it is really funny because... Frankly, questions about identity can get really hilarious. Um, And some of it's really harrowing, too. Yeah. I saw you say, and I I thought this was a really powerful phrase, that initially when your son was asking you these questions, you imagined uh, writing an essay um, about this experience, Mm -hmm. but that you quickly suspected that the essay would be a problematic form and that... um, You know, the people who comment on essays have this insatiable desire to see racial pain performed often because they don't believe Mm -hmm. um, that racism exists and that um, you didn't want to subject yourself and you definitely did not want to subject your son to that kind of uh, and you call it a disbelieving gaze And that somehow the form of the graphic memoir and drawing it and writing it in the way that you do uh, helped you to protect him and yourself and avoid this disbelieving gaze. And that that's very profound. Um, can you talk more about that, about, sure. about both how the form works, mm-hmm. in, you know, and, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I wanted to first do this, I did think about writing an essay because that's what I'm sort of trained to do, mm-hmm. write an essay. And every time I sat down to do that, I would feel the comment section kind of coming for me. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what what you were just talking about, the people that want to see the pain so that they can ridicule it, so that they can tell themselves it doesn't exist. So they can use words like snowflake and, you know, um, and whatever other derisive things they want to do to distance themselves from the pain they are causing and the pain they're a part of. Because that's a great thing to do, I guess. Anyway, so what I did was I drew myself and my son on weirdly printer paper at first, because it's just what I had around. And for that first set, I drew us on printer paper, I cut us out, and I placed us on top of the Michael Jackson albums. Mm. And then I cut out dialogue bubbles and wrote the conversation in those, and then stood on my dining room table and took pictures of it. And I took pictures of us, I just kept us the same way throughout. 
I never changed our expressions. I didn't do new drawings of us getting information. When Z asks me, are white people afraid of brown people? It is with the same expression that he asks what happened to his other glove. And part of that felt so freeing because I wasn't crying. I never showed myself crying. Frankly, when he asked me that about are white people afraid of brown people, I remember what my face did that day because yeah. we were on a subway. And it was one of those questions. It was sudden such a sweet little chirp that the entire subway car around us fell silent and everyone stared at us. And I remember it was like two me's. There was the me that wanted to answer his question honestly. Well, really three me's. There was the me that wanted to never have to answer the question honestly. And there was the me that was aware of the color of every single person looking at us and what they were going to think of my answer. And what I ended up saying to him that day, by the way, was... Sometimes, mm. which is a really heavy thing to tell a six-year-old. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you know, sometimes they are afraid of us. And he said, how do you know? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, how do you know which ones are afraid of us? And I said, well, you don't always. And it was awful, honestly, to, mm -hmm. to say that. I know I would have felt worse lying about it. And when I drew us as puppets... It's what I think of them in my head as. I sort of think mm. of them as paper puppets. And when I drew us without performing the pain I was feeling in that moment, it freed me from it. Because I felt like I wasn't lining myself up for that gaze. Yeah. And I felt like I was letting someone be adjacent to a conversation that they probably desperately needed to hear. Whether or not they believe me, I'm not particularly concerned. I think the people that don't want to believe are still not going to believe. And that's okay. That's the place they're going to live their whole lives. That is a thankless place to live, but if they want to live there, they'll live there. In August, an unarmed teenager named Michael Brown was shot and killed by a Missouri cop. By fall, protests against police brutality were shutting down the streets of New York. Is it bad to be brown? What? No! It's great being brown! We look good in colors! We have history! We don't get skin cancer as easily. Why are you yelling at me? I don't know. The TV said the police killed a kid named Ferguson because he was brown. His name was Michael Brown. He was black. He was killed in a town called Ferguson. By a white police? Policeman, yes. Ferguson is far away, right? Are white people afraid of brown people? Sometimes. How do you know? What? How do you know which ones are afraid of you? Mommy, how do you... You don't always. Is Daddy afraid of us? No. No. You know, it, uh, so, so just to, like, go back for a second and describe the way the book looks. I mean, you're already describing it, but uh, so there are mostly color, but sometimes black and white backgrounds that are often photographs. Mm -hmm. um, so the album cover was kind of the first uh, yes. iteration of that, and that's in the book. Um, but then sometimes there are like uh, photographs of streets or interiors, and then overlaid are, I, in my mind, thought of them as paper dolls, but mm -hmm. pa puppets. And those are black and white. And um, there are several of you, mm -hmm. for example, certainly at different ages, but also you you, you do change your hair sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um, what's really kind of I've never seen before 
is the way that um, the use of these, like within each chapter, often the drawings of the person are exactly the same. Um, and then, you know, maybe the distance is a little bit different, but it has so many interesting effects, I think, or at least for me it did. I mean, one is that, yeah, you're not performing pain for me in the expression. And so there's a really fascinating, like withholding and intimacy that happens for me as what the reader. It, yeah, can I tell, can I ask you, what did it do for you? Yeah. I think that, that it made me aware of, you know, when I'm reading or looking at any kind of art, of course, there's the work that I'm bringing to it as the viewer or the reader. And so I'm, it, it's either through identification, through empathy, through imagination, where I'm filling in certain things. But never in a graphic memoir or novel am I aware of myself as filling in the expression. But there's always something missing. Often I feel like it's between the frames or it's this part of the story that's not told. And there's something that happened for me in, I, I can't quite articulate it, that felt very profound in having to be aware of my own construction of the emotional context from the text mm -hmm. without a change in face. Mm -hmm. And so I became very um, complicit mm -hmm. in a way in the interpretation of the words and the language. I also didn't need an, a change of expression. I knew exactly or I was filling in my version of exactly those moments that you're describing. Um, you know, my youngest son is about to turn 12, so he's not very much age difference from Z. And they're similar in the kind of uh, intensity mixed with humor mm -hmm. um, that they ask. And not all kids are like that. And and when I've written about that, there have been times when people have not believed me yes. that these are the <clears throat> questions that my son Judah asks me, you know. Mm -hmm very deep existential questions, very political, very urgent, then then there'll be a question about soccer, you know, yes. like, you know, right, right. And so those moments, um, for us, it's often uh, when I'm putting him to bed, and I sit in the room, and it'll, I think he's going to bed. And even now, I still sit with him. And then will come this, you know, incredibly painful question about death, you know, right. or why should you be a good person if, everybody dies and everybody you ever help is going to die and everybody they're going to help is going to die. And, you know, I'm so grateful in those moments that he can't see my face. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's real. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or it brought me back to my older boys. Both asked me this question separately. They went to Bank Street when they were little, which is like very progressive mm -hmm. and I don't know exactly. I think that they were trying to avoid the black and white. And so they were talking about skin color. But what ended up happening was that this was a little bit of like a liberal idea gone astray because both of them asked me at one point while we were on a city bus, did daddy used to have to sit in the back of the bus? And I was like, why? I don't understand this question. Dad is white. Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, he's not white. He's much darker than you. And I'm like, true, he's darker than me because they were trying to like understand 
nobody's black and nobody's white right. so we're all and and so then they they were like well, what's the line and I was like oh my gosh I have to explain a lot of things are missing yes. for you and I remember that moment and being surrounded by people who were like okay how's she gonna answer this one mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and being very aware of okay you know I don't want to shame them this is a very interesting and appropriate question but also kind of embarrassing like really you don't know that your dad is white yeah sure um yeah how are we gonna get to this also like you don't really know when we were born (laughs) (laughs) um so anyway less surprising but yes (laughs) yeah um I don't know there was something about feeling my own participation in the story that was very radical and yes yeah so that was really obviously very deliberate on my part my first editor um didn't quite understand and said can you make an expression sometimes for like a consternation face maybe or like occasionally when something really bad happens can you at least show some tears Mm. and I said no 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 absolutely not and he said, well, it's just very discomforting when you don't. It just creates a really uncomfortable place. And I said, yeah, and then what happens? Mm. What happens in that uncomfortable place? And he said, well, I just sort of have to guess at what you're feeling. And I said, welcome to being a brown person in a white America. This is what happens all the time to us. When we see horrible things happening all around us, and you all don't react. And you certainly don't react with the kind of common humanity that would I, I would expect you to. That's what it feels like. You don't know. And I have to wonder about that emotion. And it felt good to know I was making viewers just do the work on their own. We talk about that all the time, right? Not having to educate people in the part of you that can get very tapped out that way. I was really aware going into this how emotionally tapped out I was. Mm. I actually told a friend about it, another writer going in, I said, I'm really scared about what's happening. And he said, well, why? And I said, because if I do this book right, I'm going to end up pretty isolated. Mm. And I'm I'm really scared about that, what that's going to be like for me, because I'm really scared of how angry I am and how much that's going to isolate me. And he said, well, that you know, we all kind of face that on the page. We all kind of face what our, you know, anger does. And I said, no, but it's different with race because I can never get away from it. Mm. And because it permeates every corner of my life. So it's not like being angry with your boss. It's like being angry with the entire world. And he said, well, I feel the same way when I think about the environment. You know, that makes me really angry. And I go through all the same things. And I'm, I'm just as scared. Obviously, this is a white writer that I was talking to. And I just, and it was funny because that particular conversation ended with a horrible misunderstanding in which he basically said he didn't want to talk to me anymore. Hmm. And it was exactly what I had feared going in. And I remember kind of sitting back after that and thinking, well, there it is. Mm. There it is. This is what it's going to be. It's going to be people that can hear this and people that have no place to take it except a personal insult and injury for you not supporting their idea of them being the good human they think they are. They take it as a personal slight. Your anger becomes their way to gauge whether or not they are a good person. Right. Has that happened now that the book is out? For Do sure. you f- yeah. Yeah. And it's so, you know, I'm it's a bit easier now to be honest because I did lose a few friends over the last years and I know a lot of us have. So I don't want to paint myself as 
somebody who's suffered more than anyone else in this moment, um, this political moment especially, I feel like has been so tough on so many of us. Mm-hmm. Once you lose a few people that way, you get used to the idea that every conversation could potentially be a powder keg. And that was a little bit what was making me write the book in the first place. How do we keep talking when we know we could lose each other? And what does it look like to step into the place where you stay as open as you can be while also not allowing other people to keep their illusions about your life or their role in your safety? I have a certain level of surprise which to me is probably the same kind of white person surprise that keeps, you know, happening. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that as a white reader, I really respond to in the book is both what we just talked about, like your resistance to doing certain kinds of work for me or for any reader. But there's also uh, this incredible humor and pleasure that I'm not saying this to be like, you know, I'm so great. I, I'm trying to understand who is having trouble reading your book. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Like, what kind of monster, you know, it, it, because I, I feel that you were so utter. I can understand. I don't identify with it, but I can understand some idiot, you know, reading the essay version of this and saying like, well, that's just not what I believe in, or that's not real. They're wrong. But I can imagine that I feel that the formal decisions and, you know, everything about the book, I just I'm having a very hard time putting myself into the mind. um, And I'm not asking you to do this, but like, of somebody who you would lose a friendship over, unless it's someone who believes that one should not have any political opinions at all? No, I think it's more the idea. Honestly, it's usually um, you are you were right when you were saying is this the shock about this also feels like a sort of white liberal kind of shock. I think it is actually usually that person that considers themselves on the right side of things and does not want to reconsider what that means. And what we've just gone through is a sort of enormous growth curve within our culture. And Certainly the people like me that were in the, you know, college in the 90s and sort of grew up with this funny sort of um, ironic distance from political activism. Like, oh, we, you know, we're all on the right side. We're all good. We don't have racism. I think it's hardest for those people to unpack this moment and say, oh, wow, I have a lot to learn. Mm. There's a lot that I wasn't looking at. There are a lot of lives I buried on the way to believing in my own goodness. I say this as a person who did this myself, by the way. I don't think I'm indicting anyone in the book in a way that I would not also indict myself. And I say this as a person also who very much sort of takes, you know, I talk about this a lot, but the the term woke, the way it's been sort of seized upon as this idea of a destination that you can get to is hilarious to me because I don't understand how all these people are getting to a destination that I've been like struggling with my whole life. And then they're there and they're like, now from the safety of this place, I will look at you and look down upon you. And I think, really? (laughs) Because I am constantly humbled by all the things that I do not know and all the mistakes I make with people's identities and all the ways I have mismanaged their dignity. It is a constant 
battle for me. I am never going to be above it. It was never going to be solved. I just expect to spend the rest of my life in this position of constantly having to reevaluate what I know, what I should know, and how I can better get my head around everything. I was raised in the same white patriarchy that everyone else was. I have all of the same blindnesses, and I have to fight all those same battles. So I think, for me, I think the person that does that is the person that just really cannot bear to look at anything other than they have been on the right side. And for them to unpack that in any way feels like a furious denial of who they are and what they've stood for. And I understand that in the way that whenever any of us are faced with that kind of identity work, it is so humbling. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like that humbling, are you unwilling to go through that moment to preserve someone else's dignity, to preserve someone else's kid's life? Really? Yeah, okay, that helps me because I think I can say slightly more articulately, one of the things I found so powerful in the book is that you are exploring exactly this question of, you know, wokeness and the idea like, oh, I, now this person is good and this person is bad. Like, that's so absurd. And there's so many layers, even though it's not a very long book, you you manage to tell all of these stories. So you're dealing with, uh, I've heard you call the tragedy of your skin color, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the way in which being darker than your parents and your brother has affected you and the way, you know, your family in India has very strong feelings about this. Oh, you know, too bad, too bad. And then also the way that your husband, uh, Jed, in the book is uh, both on the right side and the wrong side, and there is no right or wrong side. And there's a process of trying to understand himself, trying to understand you. I mean, certainly as a Jew, this is a central question for me, mm -hmm. for my husband, who's also Jewish, mm -hmm. for my kids. Um you know, of who Jews are. Are we a marginalized group? Oh. Are we white? Yeah. Um, we're both. Um, and how do you function? You know, if anything, Jews should understand intersectionality in like such a deep level, but it's hard for a lot of Jews. Um, of course. I guess my question is like, who can't find themselves in your book? That's the question, <laughs> you know, because there are so many examples. Chapter 28. Our families get the news. Jed formally proposed on a cold January night, right by the horse carriages at Central Park. We called our families afterward to tell them. This is wonderful. We like him so much. You two are very good together. Wonderful. Goodbye. She's not great with emotions. We told our friends. They said, oh my God, Mira Jacob, a nice Jewish girl. Mazel tov. We said she is not Jewish. In fact, she's about as not Jewish as you can imagine. But we love you very much. But one thing about you marrying that Jew, at least the children will be fair. So that is nice, even if they are going to hell. You know, I had the hardest time being compassionate for your in-laws, I will just, you know, say. Okay. <laughs> um, only because... 
it's close to home for me, mm-hmm. Jews who are Trump supporters. I don't have any close to me, but the idea of Jewish Trump supporters is so is so hard for me. Mm-hmm. And yet within the book, you're very clear that you have love, empathy, and compassion for them, and also a very clear uh, understanding that this is totally not okay and harmful. Yes, and that's important to me. Let me just back up and tell you that when I first um, started writing this, I remember thinking, oh boy, better make sense of this by the end. I am just (laughs) really pulling out all the stuff. I'm just really tilling all of this kind of tamped down earth between us that has been there for 20 years. I've been with my husband and wow, what does it mean to plow all of this up? I better have an answer at the end of this. (laughs) Like some sort of golden epiphany. And I think it's maybe not a spoiler to say I did not solve the problems of America. But I do feel like it's very important to say fully how much I love my in-laws. I mm. love them fiercely. Mm-hmm. They love me fiercely. It is not enough to stop this kind of rupture from happening. We still love each other fiercely. That rupture still stands. My heart is broken. And I still love them. This is just what I'm going to carry forward in my life. And I think that to me is at the heart of the book, right? So I can understand moments in your book being deeply uncomfortable for different readers, which is great. But at the heart of the book is love for somebody, you know, that you really don't agree with, you know, in a fundamental way. This is a similar question, but uh, just as you, of course, don't solve the problems or don't answer all the questions, um, you did say in another interview that the book maybe began in attempt to answer your son's questions, but really also was obviously about answering your own questions. And one of them was, have I believed in a goodness that doesn't exist? And... I don't have you answered that question Mm -hmm. or is the question the same question or does it feel different to you after having written the book and also in particular after the initial reception of the book? Yeah. I have to say one thing has been enormously gratifying, which is how many people have come up to me and said, this is the story of my family. Mm. I feel like it's been an awfully lonely and scary time for mixed-race families. To be honest, I think in America we have a real fantasy about mixed-race families. I think um, there's the sort of, every child will be beige and then America will be perfect and we'll have one, you know, unity and one love or whatever that is completely blind to the realities of living in an interracial family and the natural strife that comes up in those situations So I think there's the sort of the false belief that there's a total understanding as though we form into some entirely new unit without any history. And then I think there's the the converse belief, which is people who marry into another race do not fundamentally love themselves. They're trying to get rid of their own race. They must hate something about themselves. They must um, secretly either feel um, superior or inferior to the person that they have married. And so there's a real distrust there. But in the middle ground is this very real truth that I think the rest of us are just living with, which is sometimes 
we really get each other and sometimes we really don't. Yeah. And that's what that kind of love looks like. And it's not actually so different from any other kind of love because all of those problems, you know, this, there are a million different ways you can have inequalities in relationships. There's who earns more money and who's got the more, you know, stable family that they're coming from and who grew up with what kinds of privilege and who grew up with what kinds of chips on their shoulder. All of these things factor into a relationship. Race is one. And that flawed but beautiful connection, I think, has been really torn up by the current state of America. So it has been amazing for me to get, I think I must get like 10 letters a day right now mm. from people that are just saying, you saw me, mm. you see me, you see us. I haven't known what to do since I read this. And I feel really good about that. Mm-hmm. I felt like the entire time I was building this book, I kept saying, I know they're out there. Um, I can't be the only one. Mm-hmm. And so it feels a little bit like a call and response. And that feels amazing. Mm. Which is so wonderful because your fear was that you would be totally isolated. So it seems like you did lose people, but you gained all these other people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, and it's funny because I mean, in in that way, I think I made peace early on. Um, I did kind of after that initial rough bump in the road, I understood. I was like, oh, some people in your life are just going to go down. Yeah. And that's going to be rough. And when it happens, you can't fight for them harder than they're going to fight for themselves. You're just going to have to walk away. Mm-hmm. And I knew that. And I knew that also with the book coming out, I understood that some people also on all sides. I mean, I it came out in India two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Um, haven't heard from any of my family. Not sure how they're feeling about it. I know the, you know, the the bisexuality part, probably not going to go over so well. The talking openly about color, probably not going to go over so well. The drawing myself naked, pretty much not going to go over well. Like I just, I know there were a lot of things that I did Uh that were, that are not going to be really maybe well received by certain members of my family. Then again, there are so many other people in India that are also reaching out to me to say, Oh, you see me. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It's been, it has been a really wild time that way. Let's talk about that. This is something that's very interesting to me. And uh, in my work, I mean, I don't think I've published anything that isn't about my family mm-hmm. or that doesn't expose someone very close to me in, in some deep way. And I've also had the experience of feeling that I've made this community that, you know, readers have found my work and have felt seen. And that feels deeply, deeply important. But then as soon as you have a readership, as soon as you have people who are responding in this way, that is like, I think the most meaningful way to an artist, you also have exposure and Mm -hmm. greater and greater exposure and it's Mm -hmm. public. And I guess I'm curious about how you're feeling about that element, particularly because your your last big work was a novel mm-hmm. and there's a certain way of, there's a certain kind of protection in mm-hmm. writing fiction that oh, yes. doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And this is nonfiction. It's about, you know, your son and your husband and your in-laws and your parents and your grandparents and, you know, all, all the people really close that your friends are yeah. 
exposed because it's nonfiction, but also because it's visual. Yes. There's another, even another level. For sure. So I guess, you know, how are you navigating yeah. that? You know, how what's happening for you now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is such an interesting question because um, I, it comes up a lot. People say, what does Z think about this? Mm-hmm. And when I was writing it, he's the one person who I didn't tell anyone else, I will change whatever you want in this. I did say to my husband, if there's something that's really problematic in here, then I trust you to tell me and we'll talk it through. And my idea with that is if there was something that was really awful for him, I would find a way to get what I needed to say, but also respect. I mean, he's my husband and my allegiance is to him above anyone else. And I say that, I would say that about my child as well. But Jed was interesting because he is a documentarian. He has his own really rich life as an artist and as a person in the public eye. And he's very, very private. Hmm. And so um, this was not the book I pitched. I pitched a very funny book about conversations, about identity that were going to be hilarious. As things evolved and as Z started asking harder and harder questions, the book certainly changed and I changed with it. We all changed with it. And Jed's response was, you know, I mean, he's human. He would occasionally read something and say, ugh, okay. (laughs) All right, here we go. Um, All right. But he never said, don't do it. And it was really interesting to me. No matter the first draft that I did of this book kind of made him, because I was so protective of him, I sort of turned him into an everyman white guy. (laughs) Like I didn't put any of his personality in, which was really interesting when it was edited because my editors were sort of like, so this guy doesn't really have a lot to do with your family. Why put him in the book? <laughs> uh-huh. And I realized I'd made a crucial mistake. And so then I had to reinvest. But when I when I talked to him about it, I said, you never said to me, you didn't put me in there. You sort of made me into a pan character. And he said, well, it's your art. Huh. It's yours. I'm not going to say that to you. And then as I went deeper and as I figured out ways to actually get his personality on the page, he also never interrupted it. And there's funny because there's one of the last scenes with him in the book is this enormous fight that we get into. And that was the one that I was I was sure he was going to say no because it was a really raw fight between us. We never figured out a way to sort of bridge over it. We just sort of stopped talking about it, as you often do in yeah. marriages that last 20 years. And when I showed it to him, I thought, okay, so this is the one where he's just going to say, you've lost your mind. And he said, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. And I said, that's okay. okay. And he said, yeah, I mean... Listen, if you want to know the truth, I got to say, I feel the exact same way because blah, 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 blah. And, and I started laughing. I said, wait, are we going to have the exact same fight again? <laughs> Is that really what's going to happen? And he was like, no, I'm just trying to say. And we actually did get into the exact same fight again. But this time I was laugh crying through the whole thing because I felt both vindicated and insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was him. Mm-hmm. With my son, it's a different story because he's young. Right. His feeling about being in the limelight is quite different from six to eight than it is at 10, which he is now, than it is going to be in a couple of years. And his want of privacy is going to be a different thing. So we have talked about that a lot because the thing I think I worry about the most is I think there might be, once people read this, a kind of, oh, I love this kid. He's a great kid. And along with that comes the need for that kid to be the same kid as though kids don't change. I think people misread children a lot as very uncomplicated. I do not think that is true for a minute. Z's questions come out of a not knowing, but not from a lack of complication. 
And so he's only growing into a more complicated person. Mm -hmm. And he's only growing into um, a person with many more questions, some of them much more pointed. And I have said to him, you know, when this book is out, people might meet you and they might come at you wanting you to perform some version of yourself for them. You never have to do that. You never have to do that. And if you feel like someone is coming to you with that weight, you're actually allowed to just walk away. Mm. You don't even need to give them an explanation. And if that person is me, you're allowed to walk away too. Mm. And we can talk about it when you are ready to talk about it. But I have drawn you as one person. I could never get down all the many layers of you that are in this world. And your job is to grow into the full range of your humanity I'm not the person that has, you know, a monopoly on that. I'm not the person that provides those parameters. That's you. And anyone that tells you differently is lying to you. So you're allowed to walk away from a liar. I worry about it for sure. I would probably worry about it more if he weren't and he hadn't been born a child who is unafraid of any stage. Mm. He sometimes gets up to read portions of the book with me. He's really calm in front of crowds. He has that thing, and he's had it since he was little. He's not afraid of holding the attention, though he can be really quiet himself. Um, and so we talk about that, too, about what his sort of creative process is. You know, He's a musician as mm -hmm. well, so he mm -hmm. plays a lot for different audiences, and I think he's kind of coming into his own and his own feelings about what it means to expose yourself and be vulnerable in a moment and then take yourself back in the next. Um, one of my favorite things I've seen, but also I was like, I don't know if I would have done that because my kids are different is the book trailer for uh, the sleepwalkers guide to dancing <laughs> uh, with Z as the MC and interviewer. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, he, he really has incredible stage presence and, and that's when he was five. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I assume your husband made that with yes. you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the other thing. This is an ongoing question for me that I, I mean, I've been doing this for so long and I just, every book I publish, I'm less and less sure of, and yes. there are more and more problems in my book that's coming out. Uh, it's so funny because I haven't said this on the podcast yeah. as if this is too public, but the book is coming out. Like, so what am I afraid of? But When's the book out? Uh, September. Okay. Um, and there's a long piece in the book that's about taking my oldest son to a psychiatrist mm -hmm. and and his mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I certainly have his permission. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's almost 20. He's old. Yep. I felt I could not really live without writing about that. Mm -hmm. And that when people say, like, how are you? That's the answer. That 25-page poem is mm -hmm. the answer to mm -hmm. how are you. Yeah. And to not write about it specifically to my family, but also because I deeply believe there is a mental health crisis, sure. uh, particularly amongst that generation. Mm -hmm. 
and a kind of mass psychosis that's happened because of our political situation and because of how much repression and uh, some of these same things that we're talking about. And very differently for people of color and white people, but this intense self-hatred amongst some cis white men Mm -hmm. um, at this moment, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is not something that happened in our generation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even my youngest son was saying last night, we were talking about how puberty is coming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he said, I don't want to be a man. Right. Um, Not because he wants to be a woman, but because he has a very strong belief that men are bad. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm sure someone out there is listening, thinking like, that's my fault. It's not my fault. It's Brett Kavanaugh's fault. Um, (laughs) Amen. Yes. Um, No, that's real. That's real. Tell him men are bad. (laughs) He just, he's his eyes open. (laughs) I'm telling him men are good, but, you know, he doesn't believe me because the evidence. I feel you so much on this. See, and I just had a very intense talk because the Michael Jackson. You know, the Michael Jackson thing came out a month or two ago, and um, I wanted to talk to him about it because I didn't want him to hear about it from someone else. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll just I'll just send out a few little feelers, see what he knows. And, you know, he was very, you know, he was like 10 going on 45. He's like, oh, yeah, mommy. Yeah, we talked about that. It's real. It's real tragedy. It's real awful. Um, yeah, he's got uh, two victims, I hear, two victims. And I said, yeah. And he said and he was sexually inappropriate, which is a really weird thing to come out of a 10-year-old's mouth. And I said, yes, exactly. And he said, so are the women pressing charges? Hmm. Yeah. And I just kind of got quiet. And I said, oh, right. Well, um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't women. And he said, oh, 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 are the men pressing charges? Oh. Yeah. And then I said, I'm so sorry to tell you this I thought you knew the victims were children Mm -hmm. and he looked like I had kicked him in the heart Mm -hmm. like whatever that 45 year old nonchalance he'd been channeling what gone and he said why are men so awful Mm -hmm. I had to kind of have a moment where you know I said let's talk about the men that we know who are not awful because there are so many I understand what you're feeling right now. And I have even felt some versions of that sometimes. And I think let's talk about the men that you don't feel that way about so we can talk about what it is in them that you admire and want to emulate. Because mm-hmm. there are good men in this world. Let's talk about your path to them, to being one of those men. I mean, it's so confusing because as mothers, we want to be the ones to tell our children these terrible things that exist yeah. so that we can be there for the questions, so that we can contextualize things, so that they're not alone in it, so that we can, you know, hopefully be very honest, but also try to help separate, you know, so that mm-hmm. it's not trauma. Yeah. And at the same time, it's very confusing whether there's just stuff that we should just try to hide them from. I mean, we can't. Oh, I definitely, you know, yeah. I had that moment afterwards. I went and talked to my husband because we had decided, we had said to each other, right, it's probably good if I bring it up with him just to see what he knows, Mm -hmm. just to see what he knows so that if it's something confusing, I can. And so, and I told him how the conversation progressed 
And I felt so awful about it. And I was like, I shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't have said anything. Why did I say anything? And he said, no, but you, we both assumed it was the right thing to do for a reason. We didn't want him to hear this just on the playground out of context. And, you know, I was worried about like, how is he going to hold his face in that moment? How is he going to hold his heart in that moment? This is not just somebody whose music he liked. This is somebody he tried to be for Mm -hmm. three years. I have this rule for myself, which is answer the question you're asked, not all the many ways in which it forwards itself in your brain. And that has tended to be a good rule. But this was one case where it really fell short. I asked, you know, around the situation and I forwarded a conversation that I still have some qualms with. I don't know. Was it better for him to think that there were two women who were assaulted and go on with his life in that way? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's also so related to the flip side of this, which is, you know, what do we tell others about us or our families, right? So to go back to this question about exposing Z and your family and friends in this way uh, and the incredible importance and benefit of that, which I think has to do with so many things, including like how recent it is that women and people of color get to tell their own stories, get to define themselves, (laughs) get to be, you know, honest about what those conversations sound like and who's having them and how complex they are and how they're funny and uh, devastating Mm -hmm. and all those things rather than to be some kind of stereotype of someone else is imagination. Yeah. At the same time, I'll just speak for myself. There are, you know, and you know, I feel this way like, okay, well I've been honest and Mm -hmm. I've been honest about my long marriage Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, maybe talking about my son's mental health stuff will help destigmatize uh, right. mental health. And then there are other times where I just think I just need to keep them safe. Yes. And doing this work is antithetical to keeping them safe. Yes. And I wish I had a rule for that. Yeah. Like what I don't will know. keep them safe? Yeah. I mean, don't you think, though, if we had a rule for that, we wouldn't need to do the work in the first place? Yeah, I mean, if you had, if you you knew for sure mm -hmm. how to keep your family safe, you wouldn't be doing this work. I wouldn't be doing this work. I don't know what I'd be doing. Like I'd be on a really great beach vacation. I have no idea, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't be this. It wouldn't be this. Like this is my best bet for keeping my family safe. This is my best move for trying to get people to see us as fully human. Mm -hmm. This is it. I mean, how many times am I going to have this conversation and have these thoughts and then have, and have that, I mean, that's really an epiphany as if I've never had this conversation. Like, yeah, they, your family wasn't safe before my family wasn't safe in its own way before. Right. And lying or keeping quiet or doing another kind of work and, maybe expecting someone else to do this Mm -hmm. or no one to ever do this Mm -hmm. is not working. Right. I think it gets complicated because I'm also ambitious Mm -hmm. and I want people to read my books. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not getting rich by doing this and I'm not getting famous, but 
I want the work to be well received. And so there's also this very complicated kind of issue around profit, however that's mm-hmm. defined. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way in which I am using my family um, and my personal lived experience um, as material for my own success. Um, and I think that I don't know if I were a man, if that would feel less yucky to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly that does feel complicated. I don't know. I I had wondered if there were other um, particularly mother artist writers who you've looked to as models. I spent a lot of time um, talking with Danny Shapiro. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a mentor of mine from a long time ago. And as I was writing this, I spent a lot of time talking to her about how to bring something like this into the world because I'm not a memoirist. I certainly wasn't before this. Also, that subtitle on my book, A Memoir and Conversations, was a very last-minute edition. I did not think I was doing a memoir the entire time. I kept telling myself, I'm doing this thing. It's a bunch of conversations. It's just this thing. Because I think that memoirs are things that very important people write and people with much more interesting lives than mine. But I definitely talked to her because I think she has a very good boundary between the public and the private. I've seen her negotiate it over and over with a lot of grace. But I have to say, I don't actually think I feel very complicated about writing about what is happening in my family and that being in a product that other people can consume. I don't actually feel tremendously complicated about it for the simple reason that I think that by and large, we are so wildly underrepresented. Mm -hmm. There are so many misunderstandings about bodies like mine in this world. There are so many ways in which we are hounded and assaulted and battered because of these misunderstandings that I don't feel bad about doing everything I can to educate people about what the reality and the vulnerability and the humanity of that life looks like. I don't know if I would feel differently if I were in a white body, but I, in this one, in this world, no. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. I, I promise I'm going to move on to my next question, but I, I think in the beginning of my career, I felt a real calling to tell stories about pregnancy, birth, you know, mothering young children. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the culture did not have stories about women and women's bodies. And these things were taboo. And I felt, I felt a real mandate to talk about um, those experiences in the ways that I was. And I think that there are a lot of things that have changed for me. One is the age of my children. Mm -hmm. But I think actually the primary one is around feeling my whiteness at this moment. Yeah. And that that has just shifted my feelings around that in important ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't need to say more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I heard you say that there's an audiobook that's coming out for Good Talk. It's out. It's out. Yes. Okay. So um, I'm doing this sound project uh-huh. um, at the same time as my book is coming out. Uh-huh. I'm doing my own. I made up this 
whole concept, but obviously not, which is that it's like an immersive poetry thing. Um, and I did a Kickstarter and like raised money for it. And I'm so I'm currently doing it. Um, but you apparently have already done this. Um, and one of the things that you said was that you had to rewrite things in order to make it make sense through the audio. Yes. And can you talk more about that? Because I just had this experience of taking a 20 minute, um, they're sort of poems, they're sort of prose. And when I made the audio version, which has music, sound, yeah. noise, all this stuff, I had to change some stuff because it, it wasn't the same, obviously. Mine didn't have images, but talk about that process. Yes. Okay. So I was lucky enough to get to record both books. The I also did the audio for my um, novel with the same set of engineers and sound designers and director at Random House both times. Mm -hmm. So this time, it was just amazing. The person that I worked with was so up for this particular challenge. And he kind of wrote an initial script. And then we I went back over it. He had kind of just laid it out the way the book was laid out. And then I went back over it, actually just trying to imagine, okay, so what don't people understand? Oh, they don't understand that we're in bed right now, right? Mm. I have to say in bed. Uh -huh. um, or they don't understand nighttime, New York. You know, they don't understand kind of the backgrounds that are shifting. That was part of it. And part of it was, of course, like sound design. There's, you know, a whole section of the book that takes place on 9-11 and me being downtown and watching all of that happen. And so we we kind of did that work together. We had a cast of, I think, 30 or 40 people um, that came in to do their parts. Are these the people in the so book? So here's an interesting thing. Z really wanted to read his part. Uh -huh. And that was a situation in which I said, no, you asked about protections. Huh. That was a situation in which I said, no, I don't want you reading your own part. That's going to go to a, a different child actor. And he was furious at first. Huh. He said, why? Why would you do that? It's my voice. And I said, I know. And I said, and I don't know how to explain this to you any better than I think when you're older, you'll understand that there's probably no greater hell than playing your mother's version of you. Huh. And I just don't, I want to spare you that. It was about him going back and reading mm -hmm. himself as I had put him down on a page. But you do do that in performances of the book, but this felt different. Yes. I mean, when we are out together yeah. and he wants to do a part for, you know, if he wants to read, I like him being part of a single moment. And if he wants to do it, I'm totally happy to have him do it. Mm -hmm. um, we have a nice sort of camaraderie, but I also feel like that is an individual piece. It's not the whole book. And it's a lot of work mm -hmm. to do a whole book like that. And it's also a lot of him reading himself as I have written him. Yeah. And that to me feels like crossing a line. And I think if I were him, I don't know. I mean, I was a really rebellious teenager. I'd be pissed by the time I was 13. I'd think, why did you let me do that? Uh-huh. And that was one thing. But then the other part of it is that, um, so Jed didn't read his part, but I did Allison, my best friend is in there. She read her part. Um, Caitlin and Thunny, my to writers that's um, in there that we have a lot of very sort of political and heavy conversations. They are really in there. I had um, members of my writing group, Bill Chang. Like I had different people come in and voice different characters. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really, really fun. 
I haven't listened to it because I can't stand my own voice in recording. So I, I really avoid it. Okay. So my question, when I listen to it, I'll have my own opinion about yeah. this, but you know, is there like the nine yeah. eleven um section, were there things that you try to pull back on in terms of representing in audio in certain ways that might be similar to not changing the expression on the faces. Like, mm -hmm. you know, this is a question that I'm really interested in, mm -hmm. which is, of course, as writers and artists, we want to stimulate all the senses and we want to like elicit as much emotion as possible. But there's also something totally horrible about uh, recreating trauma and recreating violence and reifying the things that we're trying, you know, so mm -hmm. are there like super scary 9-11 sounds that are going on? Yeah, I mean, there is because in the book, there's the sound of a crash. Yeah. And they played that and they were playing it for me and all the hair went up on the back of my neck. And I also felt like I was going to pass out because I was there and I remember the noises mm -hmm. and I remember being on the phone payphone with my dad mm -hmm. telling him what was happening in the moment it was happening and that definitely lives inside me as a pretty deep trauma as I think it lives in a lot of New Yorkers the next morning on my way to work a bunch of people were standing in the middle of 7th Avenue I asked two teenage boys what was going on a plane hit the World Trade Center what? no way fucking New York City man I went to a payphone and called my father. Dad, you'll never guess what just happened out here. I'm watching it on the TV. You need to get out of there. Don't worry, it's way downtown. I'm on 14th. No one on the street seemed too worried. We were far enough away that we could see the gash in the building, the smoke pouring out of it, but not much else. Everyone had an opinion. They are going to sue the pants off that airline. I'll tell you that. Only in New York, kids. Only in New York. Are you okay? Dad, I... I don't... The other building just caught fire. It's a terrorist attack. You need to get out of there. Calm down. That's there not... There is another plane. They are showing it on the TV. It just hit the other building. What? Look at the fire, Mira. It would not have spread this way. I did not have the same feeling about taking the emotion out of the voices the way I did out of the faces. Mm. Because I think you're already working without the faces. So you're already working at at a deficit in a certain way. You're working without the text and without the faces, so you need to have the emotion somewhere. If we were to also not emote in that moment, it would telegraph nothing. Mm -hmm. You're tying your hands in a way that's that's hobbling the form rather than adding to it. So there was a lot of different ways in which they kind of gave atmosphere in different sections, and this was one of them. And um, like sometimes there are noises of being outside because we're walking outside, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And I, and I feel like it was that was the best way to do it. It raises this question of like, is there a hierarchy or is there something inherent in terms of the visual, the textual, the auditory, in terms of its potential to harm or like re-traumatize 
or communicate, educate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm thinking about like Susan Sontag uh, talking about Mm -hmm. photography and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, that that, that seeing these photographic images, um, in this case, she was talking about um, images of the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. was fundamentally different than reading uh, something. For sure. Um, I don't know yet what I think about image versus text. And I definitely don't know because I'm just starting to work with sound Mm -hmm. what I think about that. Mm -hmm. There were places in the sound piece that I did where I I have my youngest son uh, reading some of the lines that my oldest sons, but they were his age, Mm -hmm. would have said. Mm -hmm. They can't read their own because their voices sound like this. And my husband reads his few lines, Mm -hmm. but there is uh, a description of them crying. And I absolutely did not want to put in the sound of anyone crying, not them, Mm -hmm. not actors. And so there's a violin that's clearly making a sound that is sad, Mm -hmm. but it's not it's not representational Mm -hmm. of the crying. For some reason, that felt really important to me. Yes, that makes sense. I didn't do any. No, there was no crying. We didn't do crying either. But, you know, there was an, uh, another actor in the studio when I was reading the lines of the fight um, with Jed and we got heated. <laughs> yeah. Like we really went at it. Like afterwards I was panting uh-huh. and I had to kind of walk around a little bit and remind myself I wasn't actually in a fight with my husband. And certainly that dude was not my husband. <laughs> I was like, I had to, I, was, I had a moment where I was like, oh, is this what happens to actors? This weird in-between world where you are absolutely like to the death fighting for something you absolutely believe in we are with all layers of remove removed for a minute right like you were just in it and then suddenly you're back and you're in a studio and you're someone's saying that was a great take and you're like that was a take that was a take okay that was a take <laughs> good to know right thank you yeah i mean and then are there like different ethical responsibilities for artists working in different media i don't know i don't know it's such an interesting question i mean you know of course i'm thinking about like Charlie Hebdo right now and mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, a long time ago, I wrote this very short essay called Why I'm Not a Painter. And it had to do in part with having grown up with the idea of uh, graven images being super not okay. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the the prohibition against making anything that would be a representation of God, yep. but also of the human form, mm-hmm. a visual representation, because you know, if human beings are created in God's image, then you're suddenly making a, you know, like a okay. graven image. Of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though I'm not uh, a religious Jew, I have a deep cultural attachment. Mm-hmm. And like, so I think that's one of several reasons, mm-hmm. in, in include, including a total lack of ability and mm-hmm. talent uh, visually on sure. my part. But that's one of several reasons why I think that I'm a writer, yep. because there's no prohibition against that. But that doesn't mean you can't hurt someone. Right. It doesn't mean there aren't boundaries, right? (laughs) Right. But okay, but let's talk about that. Because I mean, I know for me specifically writing this book, I know I didn't do, there were many more conversations I could have included, right? Mm -hmm. Some really harrowing conversations, frankly, between myself and my mother-in-law specifically, that I understood very quickly, if I put those down, then people are going to sum her up as one kind of a person or another. And the reality of her is very complicated. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to do that. That's low-hanging fruit. And it's silly. 
And I would do it for vindication, not for clarity. Mm-hmm. And why bother? Did you show them the book? Sure. Be- yeah. And did, did they ask you nope. to change anything? No. They did not. Mm-hmm. They didn't. And to their great credit, they did not. They didn't ask me to change anything. Um, they said at the time, we're not sure we're ready to talk to you about this. And I said, that is absolutely fine. Mm. And we both agreed that we loved each other very much, but also that we loved my husband and my son very, very much. And we were all willing to do whatever we needed to, to make sure that my husband and my child feel loved and supported by all sides of their family. So, Mm. you know, that's just kind of what it was. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned in a few interviews that you had this idea, you started to, you know, cut out the uh, images on printer paper, put them on the album Mm -hmm. cover, took some photographs of it. And then you were like, oh, this is interesting. And then you wrote a 100-page proposal. Yes. And then you had to actually make the thing. (laughs) And you do talk a little bit. I've seen you talk a little bit about like you had to teach yourself uh, how to draw uh, better and also a lot of technical stuff. But I want to hear more about that because when I've heard you talk about it, maybe I haven't heard all the interviews, but you just sort of say like it was a lot of work. But I think, you know, a lot, a lot of um, poets that I know Mm -hmm. and other kinds of artists that I know are starting to explore other media, uh, other art forms. And I was hoping you could be like more specific about what, like what you had to learn, whether it was exciting or demoralizing or both. Um, And like that, how you also, you'd written a novel you'd learned how to write a novel, you'd done it, Mm -hmm. you knew how to be a writer, not that we're not always learning, but these were things that you didn't know. And how did you maintain confidence in yourself Mm -hmm. to be able to learn these things? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So first I'll tell you the things I learned. Um, One is, yes, how to draw much better than I could draw. (laughs) A lot of that was learning how to draw with a stylus. Mm. This sounds really basic, but I'll just tell you one of the most unnerving things about moving from paper to a stylus is there's a weightlessness to it because there's no friction. So even the lines that I would normally carve into paper and that have some personality, I was devoid of that. At first I thought, oh, I'll just trace all the photographs and that'll work. And I very quickly realized, oh, if you trace all the photographs, everything looks dead. So what do you do then? So then um, what I would do is this really funny process of tracing a photograph and then look and thinking about this is the proportion of that, this is the proportion of that, this is how that works, and then erasing the whole thing huh. and then redrawing it from memory, which is so bizarre, but it was my very specific way to do this because that actually imbued it with humanity, with the kind of flaws and the personality, um, and it gave things a weirdly crooked quality and a kind of aliveness mm-hmm. that had been missing before. I also had to find my personality within digital drawing because that is the thing that you can make it really quite perfect looking. And I didn't want it to be perfect looking. I wanted it to look like something I would make. So I also had to stop myself from fixing things a lot. Hmm. I also had to calibrate. I told you it was really important to me that the expressions stay neutral. Guess what is never, ever a picture that you take? You never take a picture of yourself with a neutral face. Really, you're always smiling or joking or you have some sort of... And so I would have to 
imagine and redraw and redraw until I got the perfect neutral face, mm. right? Just that was what it was. It was this kind of constant calibration. How do I get there? How do I get there? And I would dial back and I would dial forward. And then I would always have to stop myself while I felt that it still wasn't quite right because you can over perfect something and then it's dead again. So it was that was what my real process was, was figuring out how to do all of that. That was the drawing side. The other part, honestly, was figuring out how not to lay my wrist down on the stylus because it's um, a touch sensitive huh. screen. And if you put your wrist down the way that I would normally do that with a piece of paper, you'll mess up the whole thing. The lines go haywire. So it was also teaching myself how to draw at a funny angle. I was also learning InDesign was the primary software. And then Illustrator also. And then I had to learn how to do pictures research. I had to learn how to treat the photos that I took pictures of mm. so that they would show up properly. I mean, all of this stuff is these little incremental things that you think, well, that's not that bad. That's not that bad. That's not that bad. But when you're a person that has never done any of this before, it's a sizable amount. There's this uh, channel on YouTube called Tasty Toots. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It sounds like porn or something <laughs> disgusting. It's actually like tasty tutorials. It's literally like how to how to use Photoshop <laughs> to cut something out and put it, you know, it was these really basic lessons that I feel like any 20-year-old would have picked up watching once, but I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up with this kind of stuff, so I just was sort of like, all right, you're just going to have to I would write it down. Control P means something, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. And it was frustrating. There were times when I thought Lord, what am I doing? There were times when I was just so amazed and bewildered by how much information you can Google. I mean, it was incredible that way. I also had friends that were graphic designers that got very used to a harried text from me in the middle of a day saying, I've selected a picture and I cannot drop it. What do I do? You know, just funny things. Mm -hmm. um, but you talked about confidence. And I think that's really important. Because what I told myself when I was doing this is... There's definitely going to be some renowned comics person that comes in here and shames you. Mm. There's definitely going to be somebody who offers his eye-rolling opinion about how much better your art could have been and how he can't believe that anyone let you draw a book. I just put this on a guy because that just seems like where it's most probably going to come from. I haven't looked to find this person. I'm sure he's out there talking about how unfortunate a choice it was that my art was part of this book but I just I had a moment where I was like okay so that guy you're gonna get scared from your own story by that dude really because that dude is the same dude that probably doesn't even want to hear about a body like yours mm. probably doesn't even know what to do with a story like yours certainly doesn't have it anywhere within his range of common day-to-day -day experience so you want that same guy to tell you what you are allowed to do with your own story no no don't let that happen mm -hmm. and I realized I'm not going to be the greatest artist in the world making this, I'm going to be the artist I am, mm -hmm. which is fairly fearless and really able to kind of figure things out on the fly and try to put something absolutely from my soul onto the page. It will not be perfect. I also fought to keep many of the imperfections there. I hand draw the bubbles. They look hasty because they are, because I was drawing with urgency. Mm -hmm. I designed my own font it's not something that I'm sure people that design fonts for a living would like applaud because the C is a little too big and wonky. I left that in. It was important for me to keep the imperfections because that to me was about the urgency with which I needed to tell the story. 
I knew that for sure. I knew no one else was going to tell the story this way. And I was the only one that could do that. I mean, I feel that in every part of the book. And that's what I meant when I said, like, I've never really seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. And that's certainly what I most aspire to and want from my students and, you know, from other artists to feel like, yeah, okay, we can describe this as a graphic memoir, but it's its own thing. And it is in the mistakes and it is in the kind of strange, like, combination of flatness and depth and color and black and white and, you know, all of these choices, you know, I just find that to be incredibly uh, inspiring to me as I'm like trying these new projects, like, and it's so hard for me to remember because I am kind of a perfectionist Mm -hmm. and it's, it's so terrifying to me to do something badly, Mm -hmm. but it is absolutely not about becoming an expert in all of these things. It's about learning how to use the tools and also how to make new tools yes and how to fuck up and have that be part of the process or or the and the finished thing and wait let's also not pretend that that same level of fucking up is not often lauded about white men by other white men as works of genius for sure let's not pretend that those those levels of art are not the exact same thing so when i'm coming to this story part of what i'm telling myself is you have an opportunity you have been waiting for 40 something years for this opportunity you are allowed to seize this you are allowed to make of it what you will If you are going to listen to those same people that say the writing of women is not interesting, the writing of people of color is derivative, you know, all of these stories will give you a little space on the page, but honestly, we're giving it to you. If you are willing to let those people be in control of your story, then you will keep second-guessing yourself into the grave. But why do that? Why let them have that power? You have just as much urgency. Your story is just as brilliant. I say this all the time specifically to women of color in my generation, and if there are any out there listening to this, I would want them to know this. You might have been overlooked earlier in your life. You might not have had the same chances. That's not imaginary. That is real. That was the stakes of your life. Your story is important. It is urgent. In this great moment of America's learning curve of whose story has value, yours has value. It has value to me. Come out here. Do this thing. You don't have to be perfect. You know, maybe there's a critic out there who's not going to realize the importance of that or who does feel, in a way, the anthem of you don't have to be perfect. I want to hear your story and the power and confidence necessary to put yourself out there and to find a form that felt right for you. I also think, you know, that both can be true, that some of the way that the book looks came from a knowing use of of mistakes and not wanting to be so perfect for lots of personal and political reasons. But it also, to me, feels very much in 
conversation with the history of work by women in terms of the diary, in terms of mm. things that are handmade mm-hmm. as opposed to machine made, mm-hmm. in terms of things that are craft as opposed yes. to high art, yes. uh, you know, whether they're puppets or paper dolls, um, it has a really domestic and when I use the word domestic, it mm-hmm. is praise and not yeah. I'm taking it as <laughs> yeah. praise. You know, that that to me felt very conscious, very, yes. you know, uh also how important it is that the lines are blurred between who is the intended audience for this book. The content is not for children. Definitely not. We, <laughs> Can we, we say know that this. louder? Because I have so many friends. I feel so terrible when they say, I'm going to read this with my six-year-old. And I think, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> right. It's not a good idea. I have read parts of it with my 11-year-old, but parts not. Um, he's almost ready. But that, but he, that's not the right book for him anyway. He, does, he doesn't need to be ready for this book right now. It's for adults. And yet, the effect of the way that it is constructed and the way that it looks and the way that all the formal choices affect the reader does blur the line between adult and child mm-hmm. um, more in terms of like activating childhood memories oh, that's and, interesting. you know, and, and that feeling of what it was like to read comic books as yeah. a kid. Yeah. Especially because the speaker is moving back and forth between adulthood and childhood and memories. And I just think it's, I don't know, I think this is brilliant. Thank you. That's really wonderful to hear. Yeah. I mean, I I remember understanding at some point my brain felt like it was breaking Mm -hmm. with all the new information. Like I would go to bed kind of holding my head like it was a, (laughs) like it was a bowl of soup, you know, like it could tip out at any moment and everything I learned was going to fall out. And I remember, you know, like, I think when you're learning a new language specifically, this is a very, this is a thing that happens, right? Your dreams get invaded by the language and you start sort of, you know, dreaming in French, as they say, but it was the same feeling where I was dreaming in pictures, I was dreaming in lines and I was dreaming in pictures. And I remember having many moments of waking up and thinking, right, you have to use the asterisks this way. This is the way that you'll get, that has to be, it has to be used in this context, right? You can never move the limbs. You must never move the limbs. The <laughs> limbs can only appear in this way. Okay. If you need a character, you are allowed to flip the image. You are not allowed to do this to the image, you know, just all of these ideas about how it had to work with form and function but that was so exhilarating too, especially, frankly, in this crapshoot of a world that we're in right now. It felt so good to fight what was happening outside with this intense amount of growth in my brain with just trying to get my head around something totally else that was going to address this thing that was happening outside, but was just it was on me to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So the book starts in 2014. I mean, there's there's flashbacks, right? Mm-hmm. And then it roughly ends at 2016 after the election. Mm-hmm. So my question is, as you got deeper and deeper into the process of making this book, did you start to experience life differently? Like, mm-hmm. were you noticing things visually? Were you taking photographs of people, you know, of, of Z and of Jed with expressionless faces? Nope. No. So I couldn't do that. Uh-huh. I couldn't get the right expressionless face, but I was taking photographs of their faces knowing that I was going to need to recreate them in an expressionless mode. I mean, I would ask them 
please have a neutral expression. You know what no one can ever do is have a neutral expression. So so I would take photographs of their faces knowing full well I was going to draw them. I would take photographs of the streets of New York knowing I was going to put them in at some point. But I really found the structure late uh-huh. in, in the process. I cast a very wide net. I put in maybe 75 conversations at first. Huh. As I told you, I thought it was going to make a really funny book. And so I, I got all of those conversations together. And then I had to figure out how are you going to structure this? What is the through line? And how is this actually going to work now? And the time, the kind of A storyline, which is from 2014 to 2016, sort of rose. Mm-hmm. And I gave those pages one color. And then the entire history of my life became another color, right? Which is just a kind of common way to separate a timeline. And you know what I really remember more than anything was um, having certain conversations and thinking, you must never write about this. Hmm. This one you will not write about. And then writing about them a few, you know, a few months later where I thought, what are you protecting? Why are you protecting that thing? Why are you protecting a system Mm. that doesn't protect you? And also primarily because I don't look very good in many of the conversations. What in your ego is bucking against this? Why are you afraid to look as foolish as you are? You know, what, Mm. what is that? And then kind of putting that down too. Did you ever find yourself living differently, knowing that there was a chance you were going to record this? Like I, ha- I have a student who I'm working with mm. who's doing this incredible multi-generational memoir that's poetry, prose, photographs, and she felt like she knows where it's going to end, and it has to do with taking her children to this um, exhibition, which she's done, but she's going back. And she, she, I think she was both embarrassed to admit, like, maybe I'm going to find the end of the book, um, but also, like, why? Why be embarrassed about that? Mm-hmm. And I understand that feeling, mm-hmm. like like that you're kind of like uh, that your art is like driving your yeah. life. Yeah, but it is. So I will tell you, the last chapter of this book is a letter to my son that's called "The Talk We've Never Had," mm. and I imagined right when I was in the middle in the structure, I knew the structure, I understood what the structure was going to be, and I thought, oh Lord, how am I going to end this? I thought, oh, you can only end it with a letter to him. And the letter will make sense of everything. The letter's going to make sense of all of it. It's going to be it's going to be great. And as I was working, I was getting more and more nervous about the letter because I was like, how can the letter possibly make sense of all of this? How could it possibly make sense of all of this? And um, I wrote that letter about seventeen times. Huh. And the first sixteen were so angry, so angry. Like the wound was real. And I just wanted to say it all. Every bare thought, every smart way in which I could see through all of the insults, in which I could spot all of the cowardice. Whew. I mean, it was a lot. And then I remember kind of having the moment where I thought, really? <laughs> you're going to write that to your son? Mm. That's the letter that you're going to give your son to take into the world? You're going to give him the full weight of your adult fury? Are you kidding? That's not what you would give him. And it was helpful because I think that's when I got to forget about the hopes of other people. I think the first 16 letters I wrote were for the readers, for the other people that were going to need something from this and what they were going to need emotionally. And then I remember just 
thinking, no, not that. Bill Chang, a writer, said to me, what if it's just for you and him? Hmm. What if you don't have to address anyone else? And it was part of what I had been sort of wanting to do, but feeling like I was wrong to want that. And he said it, and it was the most gratifying because I just thought, yes, yes. And that's the letter I wrote. And I think it might actually disappoint some people. I think it might not actually feel particularly good for people who really want me to give them the answer to America in the end, you (laughs) know, or the people who really want me to, you know, hang my in-laws out to dry or, you know, the very many ways in which we want vengeance in this moment, which is real. And it's for real reasons. And I would never belittle any of them. But that's not what I'm writing to my boy. Mm -hmm. That's just not what I'm writing to my boy. I mean, I think this is, you know, maybe I'm just talking to myself right now. Um, I feel extremely worried that I'm going to look back on my life and feel like I just totally fucked over my marriage and my kids. And, you know, I shouldn't have written the things I'd written. But there are other moments like this moment when you're describing this, where when I hear you talk about it, I can see very clearly that, first of all, I treasure this book, and many other people do as well. Second of all, not only do I not feel that you're hurting your son, there is a consequence of the maternal imagination and this kind of work in which you are paying a different kind of attention to your child, to yourself as a mother. You know, you're writing the letter 17 times. If it wasn't going in the book, you probably wouldn't write that letter. Maybe somebody does, but probably not. And even that struggle and consideration and thinking about, am I writing it for? Who am I writing it for? What is the letter that I really am writing only for my son? I guess I feel like, you know, to the people who have said this to me directly, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'm trespassing, Mm -hmm. um, I'm, you know, really harming them. There's another part of this. First of all, I'm not sure I'm harming them. And second of all, maybe I shouldn't have needed to be a writer in order to pay this kind of attention to them. But this is how I ended up paying this kind of attention to them. This is how I ended up being thoughtful about what I would want to say to them about my experience or or how I could be awake. Yes. So one of the things that I've been asked by the white members of my family while I was writing this book is, are you paying attention to the fact that you're going to have to have a relationship with your in-laws after this? Are you paying attention to the fact that we are a family? Mm. And both times I bit my tongue from saying, are you? Mm -hmm. Are you paying attention to the fact that I'm part of this family? Because I know it's very convenient for me to pretend that my feelings aren't my feelings. I know it gives everybody the illusion of being open-minded while having a brown relative and getting to claim me as a brown relative without ever having to interact with what that really means. But I have to be in this family. Are you expecting me to sacrifice my humanity to preserve your sense of self and your sense of family? Is that, to you, a logical sacrifice And if it is, can you ask yourself why? Yeah, that's a really good question. Here's my last question. I often ask this question, but I have a feeling you might 
really have an answer <laughs> to it more than other people, um, which is, is there a question that nobody asks you about this book that they really should be asking you and why are they not asking you or something that you haven't had a chance to talk about with this book or or it doesn't ha- even have to be particular to this book. No, I mean, really, yeah. I feel like we've covered a lot. I mean, every conversation about this is different, but that's what the book sets up, Yeah, right? So I'm okay with that. Actually, one of the things we didn't talk about is that um, this is going to be made into a television show. Oh, yeah, like a, com- like a 30-minute comedy. Yeah, yeah. A 30-minute comedy. And, um, <sighs> and one of the reasons that I ended up going with the producers that I did is I had this great conversation with one of them who said, and until then I'd been talking to a lot of people who said, you're so funny. This is so funny. This book is so funny. Oh my God, it's so funny. And and, uh, and I was sort of like, okay, yeah, sure. And he got on the phone with me and said, you are so angry. <laughs> and he uh-huh. said, you're hilarious, but there's a lot of rage in here. And when I read it, I felt what it was like to be in a body in which people say crazy things to you all day long and you just sort of weather it. And, um, and he said, and it's, and it's great because you are distractingly funny sometimes. He's like, but right under that funny is this rage. And I just felt it. And anything that we make has got to have both of those things in it. And I thought, you see me, my yeah. friend. I trust you. Yeah. When is the comedy? When it's, so we're working on it right now. And so I, cool. my husband, who, as I told you, makes documentaries, has warned me that there are several, several, several steps between working on something and actually having it air. So, you know, we'll see. But um, I'm really excited about it. I'm really <sighs> excited about it. I'm excited about the team that I'm pulling together. Um, if one thing, one great thing about publishing this late in life is that I have worked an awfully long time with very many people mm. and I have a fairly good gut for the kind of person that I want to work with and the kind of person that has a really good vision and can be the same level of, you know, fearless, but also practical and also playful. Mm. You know, let's go into the uncharted territory. Let's see what that feels like. Let's try out things that people haven't done yet. Let's just do it. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you if you had advice for, you know, other writers, um, particularly other writers who are, you know, who haven't either published or worked in a new genre, genre new to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe that's it. Like, go for it. You know, my friend, um, I have a friend who's an architect who said this great thing to me at a crucial moment after my last novel was done. Because so many people were asking for a sequel because mm-hmm. they loved the characters so much. They right. said, is there a sequel? Which I thought, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> why? How does that work? And I realized that it was really catching me um, at the end of these kind of long days of doing Q&As with people. And they'd say, and what about the sequel? And I would just want to die because I would think, no, Mm. no, please, no sequel. And my friend Eric said to me, you know, I like to think of my creative life as a sort of a topographical map. And when I picture what I'm going to do next, I want to head to the quadrant that I can't even imagine yet. Mm. I just remember when he said it, I got such a clear image, even right now, like I'm sort of shutting my eyes and I can see the topographical map in my mind. I can see the quadrant I have not yet visited. The freedom in that moment Mm. is enormous. I say head there. You've just heard episode 71 
of Commonplace with author and illustrator Mira Jacob. This episode was produced by Nicholas Fuenzalita, Doreen Wang, Christine LaRusso, and myself. Our sound editor is Becca DiGregorio, and our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. The Commonplace theme music was written and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Many thanks to Random House, One World, and to all the presses who keep Commonplace and the Commonplace Book Club members in extraordinary books. Thank you, Random House, for audio from the audiobook of Good Talk, narrated by the author Mira Jacob with a full cast. Thank you to our patrons, to all of you who send us messages of encouragement and support, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening.